And as we are turning there, a reminder that this is God's holy and inspired word, and it is, by the Spirit of God, made effectual for our salvation, for our building up in holiness and comfort, and for our good. So let us read together Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is perfect. So God, we pray that now, even now the Spirit of God will be working in us, pointing us to Christ and renewing us in hearts, renewing our minds. And God, we pray that your word will achieve all that you have purposed it to accomplish. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In April of the year 1521, a lone German monk was on trial for heresy. And when asked to recant of his teachings, his response was, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is held captive to the word of God. I will not recant of anything, for to go against conscience is neither right or safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That lone German monk was, of course, Martin Luther. And when we hear those words, we stand beside him and say, yes, our consciences are held by the word of God. Yes, we do stand on the scriptures. But the question is, for us, why? It may seem like a silly question to ask, but it's an important question that we must ask ourselves. Why do we hold this book that was written 2,000 years ago so close to our heart? Why do we go for it for comfort? Why do we go to it for help? And is that question that we'll be spending our time looking at this evening. And through it, we will see that we will see that the grass withers and the flower fades. And for that reason, we put our trust in the word of our God, which will stand forever. Looking at verse 8, we see the contrast that is really at the heart of this passage. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's a familiar passage. We've read it many times. We've maybe quoted it many times. We've heard it many times. But how often do we forget that little line at the end of verse 7 that comes right before it? Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It completely changes how we view this passage, and it is a warning for us not to put our trust in the flesh, which will be our first point this morning. Looking back at verse 6, we see all flesh is grass. We see the all-encompassing nature of this text. All flesh, all humanity is like grass, and this grass withers away. This is a consistent theme that we find throughout all the scriptures we see and find in Psalm 103 very similar language to what the author, what Isaiah says here. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that our outer selves are wasting away day by day. In James, we know that our life is but a mist here one moment, gone the next. The frailty of human life is 
something that is not new to us. We all know that our days on this earth are numbered. But it is the final line of verse 6 that I really want to focus in on here. And it says, And it's in all its beauty, like the flower of the field, the flower fades. John Calvin notes that Isaiah here is not just speaking to the frailty of human life, but all the excellence which mankind thinks it possesses. And I love the language there, all the excellence mankind thinks it possesses. Humans, we, we are great, capable of some great things. I mean, just look at our cell phones. They're terrible little devices, but they are capable of great things, of talking to people on the other side of the planet. We can see their face. We, can have, we have rovers on Mars and on the moon. Humanity is actually capable of some pretty great things. But the problem is, is that we see all these great things that we are capable of doing, and we think it is all because of us. We think that that greatness is inherent to ourselves. And what we forget is that everything we have, everything that we are capable of, is a grace given to us by our God. But because we are aware of how capable we are, because we are aware of the great things we can do, we turn these great things into ultimate things. We turn these excellent things into ultimate things. Every society, every culture, every single one of us humans as individuals have that one good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. Thinking back to the enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries, they took human reason, which is a great thing. The fact that we have minds, the fact that we can use logic and use reason to think about things is a great thing. But they took that great thing, human reason, and said that is the ultimate thing. The ultimate standard of what truth is, is human reason. Thinking about our current cultural moment, we may not say it's human reason that is the ultimate thing, but human emotion. If I feel it strongly enough, if I believe it firmly enough, then it must be true. Human reason, human emotions, human institutions, human riches, human approval, we can keep going on down the list. And again, these things are not inherently bad in and of themselves, but the problem comes when we turn a great thing and try to make it an eternal thing. We try to take a great thing and try to fill it in the role that was only ever meant for the infinite. And, of course, we know that is not the case. It should be, but it doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't try to fill that whole gap in our hearts with something. And so the question for us and the question for you is, what do you trust? And I want us to really think about that question because when we are here, when we are in church, it is easy for us to give the answer we know we are supposed to give. It's easy for us to give the answer that we know is the right answer. But Titus 1.16, do we say that we believe God but then deny him by the works that we do? Do we say that we trust God, but do our lives say something else? Or maybe as Jesus says, do we honor God with our lips while our hearts are far from him? Do we say that we believe God, but our lives show that we try to lean on our own understanding and do what is right in our own eyes? Do we believe that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things? Or do we let our emotions control us and rule us? Do we store up treasures on earth? And would we gain the whole world just to lose our souls? Or do we store up treasures in heaven where our Father is? 
These are all questions that we must ask ourselves because we still have that remaining corruption within us. We still have that remaining sin within us, which means that we will battle against sin. We will battle against the sin that is still in us and is still trying to vie for our affections. We all have that one sin, that one idol, that whenever we have doubts, it starts popping back up saying, you can trust me. That one sin that says, if you just trust in me, if you believe in me, I'll make everything better. For some of us, that one idol could be pride in ourselves or our abilities. It could be our job or money. It could be that one relationship, that device, that habit, that substance, whatever you want to fill in that blank there. Whatever the case may be, it is a temporary solution to an eternal problem. It is a temporary solution to an eternal problem, and the only outcome is death. Because we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So we do not put our trust in the flesh or the things of the flesh, for the flesh fades. But instead we trust in the word of our Lord, for it will stand forever. When we think about the word of our Lord, usually we jump straight to the Bible, and we will get there in a second. But instead, I want to start by looking at the decrees of our God. When we think about decrees, we usually think about something a king or a ruler has put in place to be carried out. The problem, though, is that earthly kings die, and they get replaced, and then a new king comes and puts his own decrees into place. And the process repeats itself and repeats itself. But while earthly kings die and get replaced, our heavenly king does not die. He does not replace. Our God, our king is eternal. Therefore, his decrees are eternal. And it is through those decrees that God has ordained all things that come to pass according to his perfect and unchangeable will, as the book of Ephesians tells us. And we see this in verse 7. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. It is God who allows everything to exist by his good pleasure. It is only by God's power and his grace that we exist. He decreed that creation comes into existence. He decreed that it would remain existent. It is by the word of his power that he upholds everything. And if it would please the Lord, everything would fall away. It is within his power and his right as the creator. It is within his right as the potter over the clay. So when the Lord decrees that our days on this earth shall come to an end, they come to an end. We put no trust in the flesh for the grass withers. Nor do we put our trust in the beauty of the flesh. God has decreed for the heavens and earth to pass away and there be a new heaven and a new earth. The things of this life will not follow us into eternity. So while the flower fades and the grass withers, the decrees of our Lord shall stand forever. The problem when we think about God's decrees, well, the problem for us is that we don't have access to them. We don't know when any of these things are going to take place. We don't know what God's decrees are. Yet God, in his kindness and in his mercy, He has given us his revealed will. He has given us his word. For as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. 
that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord. The decrees belong to our God. But the things that he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. The Lord in his goodness and in his kindness and his mercy of us has revealed all the things in his word to us that we may know him and that we may worship him. God has given us his word so that everything we know to be saved can be found in God's word. Everything we know, need to know for faith, everything we need to know about life can be found in God's word. God has given us his word so that God's people in all places, all times, in all generations may know him and worship him and love him as their God. Because as our text this morning tells us, the word of our Lord will stand forever. It doesn't say that it might stand forever. It doesn't say there's a decent chance it'll stand forever or that it will probably stand forever. No, the word of our God will stand forever. A few years after Luther's stand, an English outlaw by the name of William Tyndale was forced to leave England. What was his great crime, you might ask? His crime was that he was beginning to translate the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament into English. And it was for that great crime that he was forced to leave England. As he was preparing for this great work, though, he got into an argument with a Catholic clergyman. And in this argument, Tyndale said, If God spare my life and many years pass, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Well, by God's grace, many years did pass. And in 1536, having completed the New Testament and working on the Old Testament, translating it into English, William Tyndale was betrayed by a friend and he was martyred for his work and for his beliefs. But just before he died, Tyndale cried, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And three years after his death, the King of England authorized an English version of the Bible be made for the people so that boys that drive the plow may know God's word. And much of that English Bible was based off of William Tyndale's work. Why were Tyndale and many of the other early reformers willing to risk and even sacrifice their lives so that God's people can have access to his word? It's because they understood that this, this, is more than just ink on a page. It is more than just words in any old book. These are the words that God has revealed to his people so that they may know him and love him and worship worship him in all generations. It is God speaking through the scriptures that shines the light of Jesus on our hearts and drives us out of the darkness of sin. As we confessed just a moment ago, it is the reading and especially the preaching of the word that convicts and converts sinners. It is the reading and the preaching of the word that drives us out of ourselves and drives us to Christ. For as Paul says, how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to, believe, or how are they to hear without someone preaching? In all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. 
These words that we read in our Bible are the words of life. Contained in these words are all things necessary for salvation, all things necessary for faith, and all things necessary for our life and for our sanctification, for our growing in holiness and comfort. The Bible has been given to us by God for salvation, for faith, for life, and the Bible has been given to us and to our children forever. As long as this earth shall stand, God's word will be used by the Spirit to lift up God's people and to bring them into the household of God and to keep them there. Because when we read God's word, we read all the promises that he has made to his people. We read all the promises that God has made and know that they are for us even today. That there is no expiration date on God's promises. There is no redeemed by this time on God's promises. He does not lie. He does not change his mind. Therefore, when we read the promises, even today, we can know and have assurance that these are God's promises for us. There are no exceptions. There are no loopholes. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And therefore, they are a guarantee for all of those who have been united to Christ by his spirit. If we are in Christ, then every single one of God's covenant promises are for us. And knowing that, that means we need to know what God promises us. We need to know God's word so that we can read it and know his promises for us. That way, when we are going through the valley of the shadow of death, we know his promise to be with us and to be for us. God has not left us unarmed and defenseless for the battles we will face in this life. He has not left us unarmed and defenseless as we struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. No, God has given us his word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God has given us his word. It is a sword that will never rust. It is a sword that will never grow dull. It is a sword that will never prove ineffective. He has given us his word that we may fight and gain victory over our sin. He has given us his word, and we know that it is not only for ourselves, but for each other. When we see a brother or sister in Christ who is being beat down by life, earthly words will not heal them. Instead, we are to point them to God's word and the promises in them and know that he will take care of them. He will restore, restore them. When we see a brother or sister in Christ who is maybe a little bit more in love with their sin than they are with Christ at that moment, it is not earthly words that will point out the error of their ways. But instead, we are to point to to God and his promises, his promises for the forgiveness of sin, his promises that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When we or anyone we know is struggling in our faith, it is the Lord speaking through his word that is able to mend our broken souls, that is able to heal the wounds of our hearts and able to grow us in grace, grow us in strength. And that is true not only on the individual level, it's not true for just us as individuals, but on the church level as well. The local church, the presbytery, the denomination, even the universal church. We think that the challenges that the church is facing is unique to us today, but when the reality is the church is facing the same problems, it has been facing the same dilemma that it has been facing since the beginning of time. 
Will the church trust in the word of our God? Or will it trust the God of its own creation? So many articles, so many books, so many interviews, so many people saying if the church does not do this or that, that it will die. If the church does not change its way, then it will no longer be relevant. If the church does not accept this or that belief, then the church will die. But that is not the question the church should be asking. The question is not whether or not the church will follow the most recent trends. The question is not whether or not the church will follow the most recent beliefs or whatever comes up. No, the question is whether or not the church is being faithful to God's word. The question is whether or not the church is being faithful to their God. Because trends come and go, cultures come and go, societies come and go. The grass withers, the flower fades, but it is the word of our God which will stand forever. We do not bow to the whims of the culture. We do not bow to the traditions and doctrines of man. No, we bow to the King of kings. We bow to the Lord of lords, and we obey what he has given us in his word, which has been given to us and to our children forever. Going back to Luther from our introduction, one thing I kind of skipped over, but kind of covered in Tyndale, is that if they did find him guilty of heresy, then they were likely to kill him that day. And by God's grace, Luther was spared. But in, in a little bit, at the end of the service, we're going to sing a hymn, A Mighty Fortress, which was written by Luther. And in that hymn, there's the line, The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. And for Luther, that was not a hypothetical, that was not a theoretical situation. For Luther, that was very real. But yet, Luther understood that the body, Luther, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. Which leads us back to the question we asked at the beginning. Why do we trust in God's word? Why do we trust in God's holy word? It's because all flesh is like grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field fades. Everything we could possibly put our hope in and put our trust in besides the Lord will fail us. But God and his word will stand forever. God and his promises to us will stand forever. And he has given us his words that we and our children may know him and worship him forever. So let us as God's people stand by Luther and say, yes, we are held captive by the word of our God. Yes, we will stand on the scriptures. And let us put our trust in the word, Lord and his word, which he has given us and to our children forever. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us your word, that you have given us your word so that we may know you and have a relationship with you, our God and our King. So God, we pray that we would not take your word for granted, but God, we would know that it is your spirit that makes the word effectual to our salvation, that it is your spirit that uses your word, even today, to grow us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that we would spend time with you in your word, 
And God, that you would continue to use your word to renew us in the image of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.